Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 53 of Season 5 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast where we yippee-ki our way through the 1990 Bruce Willis action flick Die Hard 2, Die Harder, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again is Hal Bryan from the Rocketeer Minute. Welcome back, Hal. Thanks, Rob. It's fun to be back. Yes, yes. We, we've had some very interesting conversations over the, the last few days, and let, let's hope we're going to continue doing that for the, for the rest of this week. So, so far, I'm enjoying myself. I, ho- I hope you are, too. And, and obviously, obviously, I hope all the listeners are, too. So 50, episode 53 begins with John trying to get some more info and ends with lots of R2 sounds. So, you know, we ended things yesterday with John making a quip at uh, Stuart, where he basically said, blow me. And then today finishes with, how much drug money is Esperanza paying you to turn traitor? So, uh, first of all, that's a very interesting, I mean, John is once again showing that he is the smartest man in the room. You know, he's the one who's able to put everything together and figure it all out. Uh, No one else is, is coming even close to figuring it all out. You know, about, yes, I mean, we, we know that everyone in the tower knows they're talking about Esperanza and stuff like that. But, you know, John also doesn't care what anyone thinks. He's going to say his mind, you know, and he, you know, he wants to talk about drug money. He wants to talk about, uh, you know, that Esperanza is paying uh, Stuart and his men. Why not? You know, he, he doesn't mind pissing off the bad guy. That's what I guess it comes down to. <laughs> You know, he's, he, he, he did a good enough job of pissing off Hans Gruber, uh, you know, uh, two years earlier. So what's another guy? Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, I think he's pretty well over it at this point. Yeah, that's true. Stuart responds by saying, I think Colonel Richelieu Richel said it best. Treason is merely a matter of dates. This country's got to learn that it can't keep cutting the legs off of men like General Esperanza. Men who have the guts to stand up against communist aggression. So, you know, it makes me start thinking about, okay, the whole idea of treason and being a traitor and stuff like that. You know, so the, the I mean, the official uh, explanation of what someone of treason is, it's the crime of attacking a state authority to which one owes allegiance. Okay, this typically includes acts such as participating in a war against one's native country, attempting, attempting to overthrow its government, spying on its military, its diplomats, or its secret services for a hostile and foreign power or attempting to kill its heads of state. A person who commits treason is known in law as a traitor. Now, I never thought about that, that, that there's like a, a law term that you would call someone a traitor. You know, like, like you know, everyone knows, who, who's the first traitor you would think of if someone says to you a traitor, an American traitor? What's the first name that oh, pops yeah, in your mind? Thinks of, uh, everybody thinks of Benedict Arnold. That's correct. Benedict Arnold. There you go. And, you know, it, it's it's really interesting that that there it's, you know, that the term traitor is is actually, you know, a law term. Right. Well, it, it strikes me as it's somewhat analogous to the idea that uh, uh, certainly, you know, probably early in the 20th century, um, terms like idiot, imbecile, moron had very specific um specific def- definitions and where uh, you know almost medical diagnoses mm-hmm. and you know and they just sort of devolve into you know insults that 
when I was a kid seemed pretty, you know, pretty harsh and pretty serious. <laughs> Don't seem to be nearly so much so now. But there were like specific IQ ratings. If you're in this category, Correct. you're mm-hmm. this, and if you're that, you're that. So it, yeah, interesting that you say, oh, someone's a traitor. You know, they committed uh, treason. But yes, that there does have to be a very specific legal definition behind it. Right. I mean, there, there's also there's, there's two types of treason. There's high treason and petty treason. You know, you'd think it would be called high treason and low treason, but <laughs> right. But petty is so right. high treason is is if it's you're being disloyal against uh, the the monarch or something you know of a high level in government or something that's that's a little lower is known as petty treason. Treason, you know. Um, basically, most places around the world don't even think of the word petty treason anymore. Treason is high treason. You know that that that's what you refer to in in England. The, according to the law in England, someone who commits high treason will be punished by being hanged, drawn, and quartered for men or burnt at the stake for women. Uh, and sometimes they would behead people for, for these type of things. But they, they abolished these penalties in 1814. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there were monarchs later on that wanted to continue using it against traitors. Uh, but nowadays we would just be consider those people dissidents as opposed to traitors. You know, I guess it really depends on, you know, how, how you look at what they've done. You know, what is it, what is it considered <laughs> in America? Obviously, you know, the whole idea of, of treason is someone, someone's, uh, the, is also it's punishable by death. Uh, that was also, uh, you know, hanging as we mentioned earlier, that goes with, uh, you know, Benedict Arnold, there was a slave in Virginia, who joined the British, his name was Billy, who they, uh, you know, caught and uh, uh, he was eventually pardoned by Thomas Jefferson, who was the governor of Virginia, uh, because people people tried convincing him that, uh, you know, because of the fact that he wasn't a citizen and didn't enjoy any of the benefits of being one, so you know he he owed no loyalty to Virginia, and therefore it wasn't treason what he did. <laughs> Which which is very interesting. It's basically right. the, well, yeah. it's it it kind of underscores the underscores the the quote. It's a it's a matter of dates. It's also a matter of perspective. You yes. know, one one man's treason is another man's uh, heroic rebellion. That's correct. I, I think George Carlin uh, says it the best. He has one of it, one of his things where he talks about you know that, that he talks about things about different perspectives. You know, that that, uh, for instance, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, you know, things like that. Right. Um, he has a whole a whole diatribe. I mean, I, I love uh, George Carlin's diatribes. I don't necessarily agree with everything that he says, but I just love the way that he delivers it, you know, because because he was fantastic. At that. That's right. His 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 jokes were uh, commentary on uh, on the world and the and politics and things like that. And even if you don't agree with his politics 100 percent. You know, there's there's logic to the things that he says, and the way that he makes his connections between things. You know, so right, that's really cool. And so the 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 at this point, you know, we we mentioned that that uh, you know Stewart gives the quote from Cardinal Richelieu. Now, do you know who Cardinal Richelieu was? Well, uh, we know him best as the the bad guy in uh, in various incarnations of the Three Musketeers. Correct. <laughs> um, but but it was a real a real world character in oh was it seventeenth century seventeenth uh, century France yes that's um, correct and not to uh, not to spoil anything but uh, I don't think he ever said that um, probably not 
I think uh, that quote uh, was attributed to a, uh, let me double check my notes on ben, the name. Bened Benedict Arnold. <laughs> well, Benedict Arnold. Uh, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord was the, uh, was the Frenchman who actually said treason is a matter of dates. And then Alexander Dumas picked it up uh, later and attributed it in his novel in the, the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay, that, that that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> the, so Cardinal Richelieu was a uh, he, he was born in 1585 and and died in 1642. And uh, his his full name is Armand Jean du Plessis, the Duke of Richelieu. Um, he was a French statesman and cler clergyman, and he was known as the uh, L'Eminence Rouge, the Red Eminence, which because he was a cardinal and they wore red robes, that that's why he was referred to by that. And you know we, you know he he was the chief minister to to, to Louis the Thirteenth, and that's why he pops up quite often in you know uh, the Three Musketeers. <laughs> He's pretty much known as the, the the bad guy of the Three Musketeers, and in, in just about every single incarnation of it. I mean Alexander Dumas. Wrote wrote the novel in 1844. You know, so we're just talking 200 years later, and he decided that Richelieu was going to be his his bad guy. Now, there's something that I read re recently that one of the funniest things is, is that during the uh, age of the of the uh, Hayes Code, you know, you couldn't have any clergyman being a bad guy, so they changed it, and he wasn't a clergyman. They they gave him like a different job. You know, he he wasn't a priest. Oh, wow. Um, I'm trying to remember what he was instead. Um, I, I right now can't remember what 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 he he was. Uh, but the idea is is that that uh, he couldn't be a bad guy. <laughs> sure, isn't that amazing? Yes, he's he's known as also saying the famous line again, whether he really said it or not. But in in many different adaptations, where he says the pen is mightier than the sword, and he was also how many different sightings in IMDb do you think Cardinal Richelieu has? Ooh. Okay. Like there are X number of movies and TV shows that Cardinal right. that Richelieu is a character. Boy, I have a feeling I'm going to be really on the low side, but I'm going to be conservative and say a dozen. 94. Okay. Yeah. I was only uh, off by what eighty two. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fine. That's uh, I I never would have guessed this either. You know that the there it's 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 unbelievable how many. I mean, he was in Cyrano de Bergerac. Like they just they just threw him into a whole bunch of different other stories that took place around that time. You know, you kind of say anywhere anywhere near there. Let's just let's throw him in, and he can usually be a bad guy. That's right. So that's I I, I find that really interesting. Uh, you know that they're they're able to just throw him into all these places. So why not? Why not? Yeah. And then John's response to um, to Stuart is, and lesson one starts with killing policemen. What's lesson two? The neutron bomb. And, you know, we get a little smirk from uh, William Sadler. And he goes, no, I think we can find something in between. Watch this. And then he, like, uh, you know, snaps his fingers at uh, one of his men. And he goes, give me a flight number one that's low on fuel. You know, and, and the, the, the guy that he's talking to is uh, Thompson, who we, we saw earlier in the movie. Um, you know, he had a little small part, but he didn't really have anything to say. And 
what we get to see is when he places his finger on like the the little cards with the flight numbers which again we got to give them a lot of credit that they're able to, to to print all this out and know what planes are flying and whatever you know you, you take over the airport and you're able to get all of these little uh um you know plastic sheets that have the names of all the flights that are supposed to be coming in at this time you know they, they definitely did a lot of research on this one um you know we see that that there's a flight from london which is uh it says wsa uh 114 which is windsor airline 114 you have another one nwa north uh i guess maybe northwest airlines because you know holly is on northeast and then you have skw so i'm not i'm not really sure which of these you know which, which these these planes are. are are do you know any of the like abbreviations that they have on these things do, does it do they mean anything to you if you're looking at them so you can looking at them as far as i know they're they're all uh are all fictional with the possible exception of of northwest airlines right. which um you know they were northwest orient when they started and then just went strictly to northwest so their their you know letters may have been nwa but certainly all the liveries uh that you see on all the you know all the airliners are are fictional which is right which is pretty standard correct no that i know but i'm saying if you're looking at the these little plastic uh, cards for each of the right. flights all the other information that's there does anything you know jump out of you i mean i i i'm, I'm asking because i don't know i i didn't do any oh. research on this it's I'm, so i'm not testing you no no i'm, I, I'm, I'm just wondering I if field tested no i'm, I'm wondering i'm wondering if, names themselves so i'm scrubbing through here give me one second let me sort of bring it bring okay that. it's at it's at thir second 36 36 you can see it so um so interestingly so we we do see an aircraft type uh so the you know wsa 114 is listed as a 747 mm -hmm. um and you see the the starting point and the planned destination so it's london to dulles so that should be uh, right oh gosh I'm, no I'm, we, we we talked about that we, i talked about this uh, a few weeks ago okay. iad is is the the call sign for for dulles well, that's correct for dulles it, but that's not correct for london london heathrow oh okay is right. uh oh it's off the, I, it's probably hea or something like that isn't off, it yeah, it's right on the tip of my tongue. But uh, anyway, so I see aircraft type, uh, flight type, you know. Um, not sure what is in and above it. We see that NWA 46 is a Boeing 757. I don't know if we ever get a clear shot at the the flight below it. Um, no, just as SKW 50. Yeah. Five O question mark. Which I would five O two. Yeah, which I would guess if uh if this were real life it could be Sky West if they were around back then. Um mm, you do maybe. see um some things on the far right of the strip. You see it more on the, the SKW one. You just see you see plus and then DRCT that stands for direct. So that would be their their uh filed flight plan routing. Um, so mm. it's going from this waypoint direct to that one and then to this waypoint and waypoints can be airplanes or excuse me, airplanes. waypoints can be airports. They can be uh, navigational radio stations. They can be um, intersections, uh, which are defined on a uh, on a map back then defined by uh, the crossing of of two 
usually two sort of, if you imagine, beams from two different radio stations where they they intersect. We can define an intersection there. Now, of course, we use GPS waypoints uh, for those right. to define those intersections. But um, so some of that stuff is certainly familiar. Not uh, um, one of them. One of the numbers on there, but I'm not seeing anything that. Well, actually, that first four-digit number, so that seven three one five, that could be, mm -hmm. uh, and then forty-seven thirty on uh, WCO one four, and I don't think this is referenced in the film. I can't remember for sure, but that's that could very well be a, um, a transponder code or a squawk code. So you've got well, a, the SKW has the same thing. They have the same number. Oh, it does have the same the number. SKW. So. It's 4730, so and then you can also see it's P1750 underneath. Yeah, so a, they just got sloppy, you're saying. That's very possible. <laughs> but, it, I mean, that being a transponder code is just a guess because those numbers, it's a four-digit number, uh, and each each column can be zero through seven. Um, mm -hmm. So that 7315 and 4730 are both possible uh, transponder codes, but yeah, they would never ever be duplicated by aircraft in the same uh, under the same control right. authority. So, and you would never see uh, 7500, 7600, or 7700. Those are reserved for emergencies, like general emergency, or lost communications, or hijacking. Well, an emergency is about to happen, so That's I don't know. Right. <laughs> Maybe they. No, but I mean, I, I, I'm still very curious how they actually get this information. But that's uh, that's neither here nor here nor there. They they have good intelligence, I guess. Yeah, I think that's that's yeah. what it boils down to. They've got <laughs> access to the FAA computers, can look at flight plans. But you know, they went to a lot of trouble to to you know. You imagine the actual process on site in this church, or they're prep for printing these printing the little strips as they call them the, with the, the that's clear right. things with the, the numbers on them and stuff and you think we did don't really it, did, care did, did about they, getting anybody anywhere did, on time we're going to just mess with everybody but that's right did did they really use these plastic strips so uh, again a, a better question from for my uh, buddy the ex controller um the only ones that i've ever seen in person were actually on white pieces of paper but it was mm -hmm. that same sort okay. of thing. You, you have a rectangular sheet like that, and then you sort of stack them up and, you know, physically hand them off in the room uh, from one person to another when uh, when they're taking over or, you know, that flight has gone into that person's sector, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the concept mm -hmm. okay. of the strips is generally correct. Okay, I, great. I wish I was an expert so, on exactly what's, exactly what's contained on them, but I, can, I just know it in broad right. strokes. I mean, again, it could just be complete BS. Everything is there. You know, there's there's no way of knowing whether they really did their due diligence here or not. Sure. Um, Stewart says, give me a flight number one that's low on fuel. And then the response that, that he gets from Thompson is Windsor 114, transatlantic from London. Fuel tanks dry as a martini. Stewart looks at him and says, activate the ILS landing system, but recalibrate sea level. Minus 200 feet. You know, and, and I love the way that he says this in a very calm manner. You know, this is just a regular everyday type of thing that you're going to, you know, change the ILS, uh, you know, landing system. Now, um, is can you do that, really? No. Do, do you know? No, that is, uh, that's probably the in single biggest. In 1990, could you? In 1990, could you do it? Well, you you could if you had construction crews going out to a series of antennas and like physically, you know, uh, 
tearing them down, rebuilding them, reconfiguring them, you know, all sorts of things like that. And even still, um, it would be really, really tough uh, to get something that would that would direct you to you know, sort of below ground. You could do something where, uh, in theory, back then the, the angle would have been too steep, you know, or too shallow. Um, to do what they what they wanted to do, the quote unquote simplest thing would have been to install new antennas a mile away from the airport, so that if you follow, you know, you follow that path down where you expect to see ground, mm. you okay. hit something farther away rather than this sort of concept of of magically lowering the whole thing with the with a computer so that that to me is this that's the second uh, single second biggest plot hole in the movie after airplanes not just going to other airports right <laughs> okay that's fair but again it's it's the fa- even though we know it's not real it's it's an interesting to to do it especially sure. Especially for most of us who don't know enough about aviation, You're like okay, I guess they can do that. Even though when you think about it, it it would just be completely crazy to be able to do something like that. Well, and the concept of of you know saying these are terrorists and they're going to do something horrible, and the horrible thing they're going to do is is to somehow tamper with this whole system to the point where you know pilots are flying airplanes into the ground without even realizing it. I mean, that's, that's a, a big, scary, uh, you know, high concept thing to have terrorists do. And it's, you know, so on in that level, it's an excellent, uh, it's an excellent and, you know, creepy plot yeah. device. That's true. I mean, and it works, it works within, it goes back to what we were saying earlier this week, you know, that you have to take the, the ideas within the movie at face value, even though, you know, in, in our reality, it doesn't work that way. You know, that type of thing. Um, and, I mean, Thompson, as he's given this order, uh, doesn't look too happy that he that he's being told to do this. But, you know, he still follows the orders. And then uh, th- the rest of this minute is just Thompson flipping a whole bunch of switches, you know, turning a dial. You know, we get all these sound effects that basically sound like there's something coming out of Star Wars. You know, it sounds like R2-D2 or something like that, making all these, these little blips and bleeps and things like that. Um, and that's pretty much how the, this minute ends. Um, did you have anything else for this minute that, that you wanted to, uh, discuss? No, I think, uh, I think we hit it. I mean, it's kind of that pivotal thing. I do remember, you know, I remember so clearly seeing this, seeing this in the theater and, and that moment of, you know, we're lowering it by 200 feet, you know, we're going to recalibrate at minus 200 feet and, you know, before stopping and, and, you know, I, I, I didn't pick it and call that a plot hole, but well, honestly, um, I'd been at that point, I'd been an instrument rated pilot, which means I'm qualified to use an, an ILS or an instrument landing system, um, for about a year. And it was still all pretty fresh in my mind. And yeah, the idea of somehow or other trusting the, the, the gauges and then, you know, being, being flown straight into the ground was, yeah, you know, that was horrifying. You know, until I stopped to think, okay, how how plausible it is. So it was a, it's a. I keep wanting to say, well, it's a good hook. No, I mean, it's it's obviously a, a terrible thing to to think about. But in the context of a movie where you've got bad guys doing bad things, yeah, it was uh, that's true. It was a good choice. All right, and uh, so the 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 script uh, is is pretty much word for word. You know, there isn't that many differences here. 
Um, the one biggest difference is the, the, the order that Stuart gives to, to change the, to recalibrate actually happens uh, two pages later in the script. You know, it's, it's interesting the, the way that they do that. And the response from uh, Thompson, it, it, when, when he's asked to give him a flight number low on fuel, he, he just hands him a slip of paper. Stuart reads it and switches to another mic or frequency. And that's all it says. It doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't say anything about, uh, you know, him saying that the the fuel tank's dry as a martini or anything like that. You know, they just completely skip over. They skip over that uh, thing. I mean, I, I don't oh, know if if Thompson himself would have, uh, you know, made up that uh, ad lib or something like that, or they decided along the way to to do that. Uh, another difference in this minute is, in in the script in this minute is that. Uh, when Stuart starts talking about Esperanza, he says men with the guts to stand up to Soviet aggression as opposed to communist aggression. But I, I can understand why they would change uh, that in 1990. You know, that's... <laughs> you know. Right. Well, it was... You know, the Soviet Union had what about... That's right. When this that's right. I mean, the Berlin Wall already came survive. down. So it was like, it was, it was, it was getting there. Uh, but all, right. all the rest is, is exactly the same. Yeah. So every Wednesday we have a segment called Off the Beaten Track Aviation Edition, where my guests will give some sort of uh, story, anecdote, adventure, misadventure, something that's happened to them over the course of their life that is somehow related to aviation, whether it's on a plane, whether it's in an airport. Um, I'm sure you've got tons of those stories, Hal, but uh, I, I, I hope you're able to think of one <laughs> yeah, you know, that's that you the... can give us. Yeah, the challenge for me, the challenge for me was definitely narrowing anything down. Um, and, uh, you know, I've certainly, I mean, I've had my, my misadventures as a commercial airline traveler, just like everybody else as well. But, um, you know, the, and, and I've been very, very fortunate both professionally and personally to be able to fly a lot of, uh, a lot of different types of airplanes, and that's something that's that's very meaningful to me. But um, I suppose the 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 one thing, and I, it's not not necessarily much of a story, but I can tell you it was my my most meaningful day of flying um, would have been in uh, it was the fall of two thousand eight, and I'd made some friends up in Canada who collected uh, and restored. Uh, vintage biplanes from the 30s and 40s in particular an airplane called the uh, de Havilland Tiger Moth which is um, since I was a little kid and uh, has been one of my very very favorite airplanes and it was an airplane that that uh, I dreamt of flying um, and you know just hoped that one day the opportunity would uh, would come along made some uh, through a mutual friend made friends with this group up in Canada and ended up going to visit them and they uh, we got along great. They took me uh, took me in, so to speak, and uh, you know adopted me as one of the gang. Um, then I went and got a uh, Canadian pilot license uh, to validating my U.S. certificate up there, and was able to get checked out and and, and fly their uh, you know 60, 70 year old airplanes at the time. So the 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 great day of flying was I was able to get. Uh, uh, both my wife and my uh, my now late father um, up there at the same time, uh, so I could give each of them and, and my dad, who had an illustrious flying career, uh, you know, goes back to uh, about uh, 
you know, the late forties. Oh, wow. um, but, uh, I was able to give them both their first rides in this type in this, uh, it was a 1941, uh, de Havilland tiger moth. So that was in 2008 and it's, you know, it's resonatingly very, uh, very special to me. There's video of me doing those flights. And when my dad is on the ground, you see him off kind of town toward the end of the runway with a camera and he's snapping pictures like crazy. And that's one of the, that's one of the only ways I have, where I, well, I've got like evidence that say, yeah, he was actually kind of proud of me. I can show him sitting there taking pictures. Um, and then the coda to the story is now 15 years after that flight, I'm in the process of buying that very airplane. Oh, wow. So that's going to be uh, coming into the, the family probably this fall, um, yeah, wonderful, you know, just uh, a very romantic uh, era for me, the the design dating back to the early 30s. This one built in 1941, uh, used to train uh, pilots who went on to fly in all the Commonwealth uh, Air Forces, the Royal Canadian Air Force, British Royal Air Force, et cetera, et cetera. So there's the nostalgia there, but then, of course, that individual airplane being meaningful to me as it, it was, you know, was able to give uh, give dad his first ride in the type give my wife her first ride in the type and then now she and i will be uh we'll be flying it together a lot uh, sometime hopefully as i said around this fall wow that's really cool so that airplane has very quickly has a movie connection as well um uh and i know we're going to be talking about some some movies uh, i think tomorrow um but i'm not giving away my list but i will say there's a movie uh with robert redford called the great waldo pepper and there are two, uh, well, there's more than two, but there's a couple of sort of notable crash scenes in there where pilots flying a uh, Curtis Jenny, which even in the early 70s was very, very rare and unusual. This is an airplane from the teens. Um, pilots have to be shown crashing these airplanes, so they actually used stunt double airplanes. So you've got real Curtis Jennies and standard J1s flying throughout the film, but when it's time for one to crash... Uh, they used a de Havilland Tiger Moth, which was more available and more prevalent and, and frankly, just a lot less valuable back then. So they made it up. They did a credible job making it to look like the other airplane and then truly crashed it on on film. Uh, so the one that I'm talking about, the one that I'm buying uh, in, you know, flew in 1973, crashes into a bog uh, in the Great Waldo Pepper, and then... Um, got torn apart, put in storage, didn't fly again until 2006. And it was shortly thereafter that, you know, just two years later that I was able to fly it and give, uh, give those rides in it. And now it'll be, it'll be ours and be in our hangar wow. before long. How many, how many planes do you have? Uh, this is really, this is my, our first in terms of ownership. Uh, I can knew you said my hangar. So I thought maybe it's like, you know, I'm I'm starting to make the the connection, but it sounds like, you know, someone has a barn. So it's like here, these are the horses I have in the barn, you know? So I was thinking, yeah, it's, (laughs) I was thinking that was your comment. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're having, uh, we're having a hangar built to house, uh, house this airplane. Oh, okay. So, uh, there, there was a family airplane that I grew up, uh, grew up around and things, but in terms of. In terms of specifically uh, belonging to me and my wife, this will be uh, this will be the first. All right, very cool. Thank you very much for that story, Al. So you you. you want to once again tell people uh, where they can find you? Well, you can find me uh, all over the place. As you're listening uh, to this, it's uh, it's the middle of Air Venture Week here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, largest aviation event in the world. Um, 
650 some thousand people converging on our little town and 12 uh, 10 to 12,000 airplanes so so right now as you're listening to this I am running all over the place uh, working on publications content and all kinds of stuff helping share uh, share stories about our great event uh, at the Experimental Aircraft Association otherwise uh, you can catch up uh, with me on uh, many many episodes of the Green Dot podcast which is EAA's podcast you find those uh, inspire.eaa.org or really anywhere you get your podcasts and of course as you mentioned at the very beginning uh, did uh, with Jim O'Kane did the Rocketeer Minute um, more than 100 episodes uh, doing a deep dive into that film uh, and uh, um, easy to find out there at rocketeerminute.com or on social media or anywhere you get your podcast. All right, excellent and finding me is very simple just do a quick search for Move Around Minute you can find me on Twitter, you can find me on Facebook, or you can find me on my website, movearoundminute.com. So, until tomorrow, yippee-ki-yay! Yippee-ki-yay! If you're fond of sand dunes and salty air, quaint little villages, it